Scripture reading today is from Genesis chapter 18. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went toward Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? The Lord said, If I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than the fifty? Will you destroy the whole city for a lack of five people? If I find forty-five there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again he spoke to him, what if only forty are found there? He said, for the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? He said, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left, and Abraham returned home. Amen. Uh, Welcome to Mosaic, and just sort of first things first here, I'm feeling a little bit under the weather, so if you're a guest or visitor, I want to apologize to you, because normally my voice doesn't sound this good. Uh, Normally it's sort of like a squeaky, high-pitched, sort of scratchy deal, but today you get whatever level of baritone I'm able to scrape together, so uh, you're welcome. You said I sound like Galen today? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Who, wouldn't want, who wouldn't want that? And that's right. So why Genesis? Well, as we've seen, Genesis is all about how the world got to be, how it's gotten, how it's gotten to be broken, how it's been broken, and, and really, most of all, what God plans to do about it. And why Abraham? Well, Abraham is what God plans to do about it. Through Abraham and through his family, we've seen that God wants to get and plans to get the planet back. But to be able to use Abraham, and uh, we've seen that Abraham's had to go through this enormous amount of testing uh, and trials, and he's failed repeatedly along the way. But here, (coughs) in Genesis 18, really, for the first time, we see some glimmers of greatness begin to break through in Abraham's life. He's had some some fleeting moments, but what he does right here reveals the depth to which the grace and the call of God 
have begun to transform his life. Because what's God called Abraham to be? Well, he's called Abraham to be a blessing to who? All peoples. And right here we see Abraham, if you can get the picture, taking up that mantle, moving out into the world to be a blessing to a place that from anyone's perspective did not deserve what Abraham is trying to do for it right here. And if we will go to the bottom of this passage, dive deeply into it, I believe we can see how we can do the same in our world, for our city, our friends and co-workers and family, maybe who don't even deserve what we're trying to do for them. So what are we supposed to see here in the life of Abraham? Three things we're going to see in this passage. First of all, one who prays. Second, one who pleads. And finally, one who priests. One who prays, one who pleads, one who priests. Let's begin here. You guys ready? Here we go. Number one. Let's look at one who prays. And now, again, as you can see easily from the passage, it's all about Abraham praying for the city of Sodom, Sodom and Gomorrah. But let's ask, first of all, well, what kind of prayers does he pray? That's what I want to focus on first. What's the anatomy of Abraham's prayer, this great patriarch? And what should then maybe, what should the anatomy of our prayers be? What should our prayer life be? look like it's three things i want to tell you i hope to show you abraham prays three kinds of prayers because prayers he prays bold prayers and he prays big prayers look at these briefly in turn first of all abraham prays because prayers what does this mean well let's look at how the narrative opens to give us some clues first of all look at verse 17 it says hey god asks this this is sort of what launches the story shall i hide from abraham what i'm about to do now of course this is on purpose from god he's not senile he's not sort of wandering around the middle east going like you know you know honey where'd i put my keys am i gonna hide from abraham at the doom like no this is something more like a, a few summers ago carrie and i actually uh, were about to take our kids uh, on vacation we gathered the children around us and with the children there around us we looked at each other and i said honey should we tell the kids where we're about to take them Now, again, you only say that when you're about to share, you're about to disclose information with someone. Look at verse 21, it's sort of more of the same. God says, I'm going to go down now and see. You ask, well, why does God have to go down to know anything? He doesn't. He knows it all already. What's happening is that God is coming, and here's the word, making himself accessible accessible to Abraham because he's not treating Abraham here. He doesn't treat you like we treat last year's Christmas fruitcake, right? No, he actually cares to involve us in what he's doing in the world. And look at it again, verse 21. God says, if not, basically, if the city is as bad as I've heard, if not, I'll know. Well, this is an invitation to a discussion. Here's the point. This is showing us that whatever happens next, whatever Abraham praise next this is all in response to god because god has initiated a relationship god has begun this whole thing god has initiated a conversation with him god begins people respond and i want to show you right here that what you're seeing in this passage is a true picture of biblical spiritual reality which is way different than our modern view of spiritual reality here's what i mean Uh, this past week my family and i went to see uh, a wrinkle in time new movie based on the classic book by madeline lingle and i want there's a lot to like about the movie 
I mean, like, come on, there's a, a, a biracial teenager as a heroine, awesome, right? Uh, directed by African-American woman, fantastic, give me 50 more of those. Loving marriage between mom and dad, or like both scientists, love it, right? Good wins over evil, check, right? I like that. And yet, if you know the book, you know that Lingle was a Christian. And, and yes, she had some you know, quirky views, but the core of the book, written about 50 years ago, was an explicitly Christian worldview where God is actively involved in his creation. He sends Jesus as a warrior against evil. And then he sends angels in the book to help Meg, the heroine, in her fight against evil. And Jesus is referenced. He's quoted. The apostle Paul is quoted at these crucial moments in Meg's life where she's fighting the evil and fighting in the darkness, but now the movie today is completely scrub-free of any reference to Christianity, and what, sorry, giant Oprah, because she's in the movie, tells Meg, giant Oprah doesn't tell her, put your faith in the one true God, because God cares about you, he's reaching out to you, he's with you, Meg, right in your struggle, like the book does, but no, now we hear, you must literally become one with the universe and believe in yourself. And of course, the last song in the movie is literally, I Believe in Me. Thank you, DJ Khaled, Demi Lovato. Now, the reason I bring this up is far less of a complaint, even though it's like a small complaint, right? But whatever, it's far less of a complaint because, of course, it's a better movie, way better movie than lots of other stuff out there. And don't let me dissuade you. It's lots of fun. Go see it if you want. But I point this out because it's far more of an observation, which is this. That today, responding to a God who has made us, created us, given us gifts and abilities, and who desires to have a relationship with us, that idea is out. Finding the truth within us is in. Acknowledging the authority of a real and living God and his word to us is out. And picking and choosing what we want to believe is in. See, the core of the book has been changed, and what we see right here in Genesis 18 is the distinction between the two, because who initiates the whole encounter? God does. Who calls Abraham? God does. Abraham never finds the power within himself. He never becomes one with the universe. He only ever draws on the power of the one true real God who's come to him. And here's the problem with modern spirituality today in the end. The idea that God is just whatever we want him to be. The real problem, hear me, is that that kind of faith only works for the strong and not for the weak. It's only for those who've got in them enough to overcome, enough courage to summon up. Those who decide they're good enough and strong enough and doggone it, people like them, right? But what about those who can't? What about those so broken and wretched they have no capacity within themselves to save themselves? Who saves them? Do you know why the gospel has always been good news for the poor? Why the vast majority of Christians today become Christians in abject poverty? Because the gospel is good news for the poor. They know they can't save themselves. The rich don't know that. They've got talent. They've got career. They've got power. They've got money. They've got influence. They've got that nest egg 401k. They've got their perch. The rich think they can save themselves, which is why modern spirituality, in the end, is just another form of self-salvation. Salvation by works. Oh, but the Christian message is a different story. It's this. You can't save yourself. You must respond to a God who is reaching out to you. And that's what Abraham is doing. Abraham prays because God is reaching out to him, drawing him near. 
Abraham prays because prayers. But second, he prays also bold prayers. This is how he prays. You see this uh, a little bit later on in the passage when he's in the middle of his prayer. Abraham tells you what's going on on the inside, how he's feeling. It says, then Abraham, look at this, says he spoke up again. He says, now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes. Did you, did you catch that? Abraham is saying, I'm, I'm two things at once, God, I'm both nothing before you, and I'm incredibly bold. This is amazing because it's so hard to grasp and hold on to this tension like God desires for us to let the people of God, in theory, are be able, supposed to be able to do. Because, you know, this typical uh, conservative churches, can I go there? Uh, uh, typical uh, traditional religion, they get the dust and ashes part. Right. They know people are flawed and broken. God's high, mighty, all-powerful compared to him. We're nothing but dust and ashes. And you know what? They're right in that way. But traditional religion doesn't get the boldness part of Abraham's prayer here. On the other hand, liberal churches, new agey. Can I go there? New agey type faith systems. They get the boldness part, right? Their message is, get what you want out of life, girl. You just go get it, right? You deserve it if you want it. YOLO, right? (laughs) But they reject the dust and ashes before God part. Oh, we're not dust and ashes. We're divine beings with mysterious energies, Monica Bellucci, actress said. But here, Abraham has both. How? Here's how. Because Abraham has come to know the God of the Bible, who is a God of grace. He's a God of grace. On one hand, Abraham, he knows he's but dust and ashes. I mean, look at the record of his life up to chapter 18. He's a liar. He's mistreated his concubine, Hagar, his son, Ishmael. He's been a terrible husband. He's openly doubted God, and yet... God comes to him time and time again. God makes these enormous enormous promises to Abraham that's growing Abraham out of where he is, that's so far beyond Abraham's imagination. God literally tells him, you can ask for the stars, and I'll give it to you, Abraham. A real encounter with the real God has made him both humble and bold at the same time. And to know the biblical God means you see yourself like this. On one hand, you're but dust and ashes before God. He owes you nothing. But because he has come to you, revealed himself to you, he's given his great and precious promises to you, you can be incredibly bold. Abraham prays because prayers, bold prayers. Thirdly, he also prays big prayers. Abraham here, he prays for an entire city to be spared and redeemed. This is astonishing now. Maybe you've been sitting here thinking, what's like the big deal about praying? Because thoughts and prayers don't do anything, right? Come on, y'all seen that in the news, right? That's been a big thought in the news lately. On one hand, right, people who say that thoughts and prayers don't do anything, on one hand, they're right. Your nice, happy, friendly Hallmark greeting card thoughts don't do much. They just don't. And it's true, prayers alone aren't enough either. But actions alone aren't enough either. Our aim as Christian people ought to be able to be able to do both. And God's aim for Abraham here is to do both. I mean, did you notice in the scripture reading why God chooses Abraham? God chooses Abraham so he could do some stuff. 
some actions. Look at this. God tells you, by the way, why he chooses Abraham. He says, for I have chosen him, and here it comes. <laughs> so that he will direct his children, do some stuff. His household after him, do some stuff. Keep the way of the Lord, do some stuff. By doing what is right and just. God's purpose is that Abraham and his family, those of us who know God, fear God, would be people. This is literally saying we ought to be people who do justice in the earth. And this is showing us, maybe even counterintuitively, that prayer is one part of acting justly. You say, well, I've never heard of like prayer and justice being connected. Well, it's a, actually a theme in the Bible. Go read Luke 18. Jesus himself teaches a parable all about the connection in God's heart between prayer and justice. Why is prayer a form of justice? It's, here's why. Because justice in the Bible isn't just not doing wrong things to others. We think, well, I didn't murder my neighbor this week. I'm a pretty just person. Did knock off a 7-Eleven firebomb to UN Embassy. I'm good, just person. No, no, no. Justice is actually in the Bible, it's action. It's doing unto others what they deserve. <clears throat> what the Bible says, you owe them as members and image bearers of God. In other words, you can be an unjust person because of the things you don't do. In action, when you should act. Silence, when you can speak. Isaiah 58 makes this super clear. Isaiah 58 says, in action is actually a form of injustice. But what's Abraham doing here? Is he being inactive? No. He's engaging with God the only way he can here. Abraham, if you can get the picture, he's one man against the city. He's the only follower of God, only believer in monotheism on the planet. He is doing what he can here for, by the way, an unjust people who have declared war on him in previous chapters. But here's why. This is an act of justice. Because to not pray for them here would be to to deny them what they deserve as image bearers of God. Now, if we stop at praying, come on, that's not enough. Being the just people of God is far, far more than prayer. It involves laws, government, civic involvement, how we vote, how you spend your money, walking out if you need to, protesting if you need to, marching if you need to, being civilly disobedient if you need to. I need an amen for that one. Laying down our life if we need to in the name of a higher law. Being just is far more than prayer. Ask Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Ask Reese Howells, by the way, whose prayers turn the tide of World War II. Ask Abraham Lincoln. Ask Dr. King. But Abraham's life shows us that being just isn't less than prayer either. Our goal should be to do and both. At the same time, what this shows us here, Genesis 18, there is one who prays. Let's pray like Abraham, because prayers, bold prayers, big prayers, yes. But number two, there's also here, now, in the passage, we're going to see one who pleads, one who pleads, because Abraham isn't just praying here, can you see? He's, he's also pleading for the city. Why? God tells him. The outcry, this, this word comes twice, outcry against. Did you catch that? Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad, here's the word, as the outcry. It's reached me. 
Now, to understand what's happening here, you got to get that word outcry. Because if you only think that Sodom and Gomorrah were judged for their, their sexual sin, although that was part of it. But if you only think that, you've missed what the Bible is telling you. Because Sodom, the name of the town, means to scorch. Gomorrah, the name of the town, means to enslave. Can you see? They, they represent a, like a totalitarian regime in the ancient Near East whose actions and force of will are scorching. They're enslaving the people groups around them. And the outcry against them has gone up and so God is coming down to do something about it and by the way let me just suggest to you you actually want a God like that you want a God who hears the cry of the victimized you want a God who comes down to deal with real evil and injustice but to have that you got to have a God who also judges you Our culture, we balk at the idea of a God who judges. But to have a God who can bring justice to the victim, you got to have a God who judges the one who sins without a God who judges sin. There is no hope for the oppressed people of Genesis 18 and no hope for the world today. But if there is a God of justice, what hope is there for you? Now we'll get to that a bit later. But something unexpected happens here. Uh, Abraham begins to plead for the city to be spared. And if you know the story, you think, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I I know why he prayed like his nephew Lot is in the city. He's got his nieces and nephews there and his family. Uh, So he's praying for his family to be spared. No, no, no. If he were only concerned about his nephew, he would have just prayed for that, right? He would have just prayed, God, get my family out. And once Lot is out of there, man, just nuke the dirty pagans and we'll call it a day. Abraham does not pray for his family to be spared. He pleads for the city to be spared. There's a difference. And the reason he's able to do this, act so counterculturally in his day, even in our day today, is because here's this. Here's why Abraham sees something inside the heart of God that moves him. What was it? Let's take a look. Verse 23, heart of the passage. Abraham approached him. God and said, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Now this word approach here, as your favorite German Bible scholar, Gerhard von Rad, uh, has pointed out, this commentary illuminates the passage for lots of folks. This is a word used of a courtroom setting. In other words, Abraham, if you get the picture, Abraham is approaching the bar of God's justice and he's kind of like acting like a defense attorney he's defending these cities who have hurt him and as he approaches the bar of God's justice what does he say here's what he said verse 25 far be it from me to do such a thing God to kill the righteous with the wicked treating the righteous and the wicked alike far be it from you will not the judge of all the earth do right Abraham is appealing to God to spare the city but on what basis like an attorney would have what possible thing could abraham appeal to look at what he says will not the judge of all the earth do right oh do you see what he's appealing to you've got to catch this he is appealing to god to spare and forgive the violent oppressor because god is just that ought to blow your mind That sounds like the opposite of justice. You would think he would say, God, because you're just, 
Therefore, you must punish these wicked people. That's the way we tend to think again of justice. The way most people think it works, we think we should punish the wicked for the sake of justice. But Abraham here, he didn't go in there. He's asking God, would you be willing to forgive for the sake of justice? And what is the basis for the kind of justice Abraham sees? Look at this, verse 24. What if there are 50 righteous people in this city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people in it? What's that? Abraham's discovering that perhaps the basis for God's justice is not the wrongdoing of the majority, but the righteousness of the minority. Yes, and let that sink in. God is not asking, excuse me, Abraham is not asking God to ignore the wickedness of Sodom in order to save it. What he is asking is this. Could God value the righteousness of the few so much that it covers the wickedness of the many? God, would you spare the city for the sake of a righteous remnant inside it? See, Abraham's asking, is our record, God, all we got to go on? Or is it possible that the record of the righteous few could stand in the place of the unrighteous, undeserving many? What's he doing? Abraham here, hear me. He is talking about the possibility of the reversal of corporate responsibility. The possibility of the reversal of corporate responsibility. And the reason that it's easy to miss this is because we live, again, in 21st century America, one of the most individualistic cultures in human history. And what I mean by that is that we deny, we deny the idea of corporate responsibility. We believe solely in individual responsibility. I'm about to press some of y'all's buttons here. All right, so just get ready. Hang on. It's gonna, I'm, we're going to get through it. And the wind's going to stop. Just hold on to your seat. And we're going to get through this. See, we say today... We think, it doesn't matter what my father did, what my race has done, what my people have done. I am not responsible for anything anybody else has ever done. The only record that counts is my own. And by the way, you don't really want to go there either, if we're honest. (laughs) But most people, in most cultures, most places of the world throughout time and history have had a more balanced view, and so does the Bible. Here's what the Bible says. Of course you're responsible for what you've done, and so is everyone else. Of course what individuals do absolutely matters. You will individually stand before the justice and judgment seat of God one day, Hebrews says. That is not in question, but what this is saying here is that there also exists a very real idea of corporate responsibility, that the record of the people you are connected to, that you're in solidarity with, impacts you. Now, we get really bit out of shape when we hear this, but it's all through the Bible, right? I mean, we don't like stories like this one, like the story of Achan. How many pastors have you ever heard preach on Achan? Jo- Book of Joshua, right? Right after, you're about to hear it, uh, after the Hebrew army defeats Ai. And God tells his people, right? He tells them, I don't want you to be imperialistic like every other nation does when it comes and conquers. I don't want you to enrich yourself through conquest. All the plunder from this city, any city, goes into the tabernacle to care for the tabernacle, for the tithes for the priests, and most importantly, he says, for the tithes for the poor. God tells him, you don't keep a cent for yourself. Oh, but Achan, this one man, goes, he gets a pile of money, and he hoards it, and he hides, he buries it in his tent, and when he's discovered... 
he and his whole family are executed. And when we hear that, we're like, oh my gosh, is this story in the Bible? We're horrified. But if you told that story almost anywhere on the other side of the world, outside Europe, the majority of the people in the world, if they heard that, they would probably think, well, yeah, that's just kind of how it goes. Kind of how it goes. And by the way, if you're a Christian today, and you're a person who insists that every action and command of God is just, then what he does here in punishing a family corporately for the act of someone else they're connected to, then that must be a just action as well. But here Abraham, he's asking this amazing question, oh God, could your justice work in reverse? Could someone get not what they deserve, not what their community deserve, but something new? Could someone get the mercy and the blessing and the forgiveness due to someone else? If it's true that the sins of others could come onto me and make me guilty in a way, what about the possibility that someone else's righteousness could come to me as well? Let me ask you, is your hope your record? Is the only hope of mankind, humankind, its own record? God, I hope not. If that's the case, we're in trouble. Or could the righteousness of someone else spare me? And if so, how far will this go? God, Abraham asked, would you spare the city for the righteousness of 50 people? Do I hear 45? (laughs) 40. Do I hear 30? 20 people? Yes. 10 people? Yes. To Abraham's astonishment, God keeps saying, yes, son. Yes, yes, yes. It's like an expert fisherman. God, Abraham on the hook, he's reeling him in to his heart here. Could the righteous few cover the righteous many. God says, yes, 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 son. Oh, but here's the shocker just when the story reaches its climax, just when you think Abraham is going to go the last step. Ask one more time. Abraham goes home. (laughs) Abraham's got to incrementally 50, 45, 40, 30, 20, 10, and then he stops. Yes, the passage says Abraham literally went home. The resolution doesn't come. You're thinking... Something else has got to happen here. It's like the movie, right? If it broke before the, the, the big scene finishes at the end, right? I mean, it's like seeing in the movie, you know, T'Challa face down, Killmonger, right? At the end of the Black Panther. And you're thinking, they're on the bridge. They're fighting. Movie reel breaks, ends, everybody goes home. You're like, something else has got to happen. It can't end there. But nothing happens here. And the city is lost. The city's lost. What what are we waiting for? What are we hoping for in this story? What logically should come next? Well, what should come next is Abraham should ask the question, O Lord God, though I am but nothing, I'm nothing but dust and ashes, I'll be so bold as to speak one last time. What about one God? Would you spare the city for the sake of one righteous person? We're waiting for the question to come, for God to say yes, but it never comes. Why not? Well, maybe Abraham lost his nerve. Maybe he thought he couldn't go any further. Maybe he realized that if he got down to just one righteous person in the city, all he had to look at was his nephew Lot, who was only relatively righteous in comparison to the people around him. And Lot's relative righteousness couldn't save the city, just like your relative righteousness isn't enough to save you. But Abraham here learns an amazing principle. That the righteousness of the one can save the unrighteousness of the other. It's like he found the secret way 
through the impenetrable fortress of God's heart, like this high secret pass. But he knew he couldn't walk it. He knew Lot couldn't walk it. He knew Lot couldn't do it. There was no truly righteous person to appeal to, and so he went home. But what Abraham saw was that God would spare because of the one righteous person. And who, what does that point us to? Oh, that there isn't just now in the passage one who prays, not just one who pleads, but there's one here who also priests, priests. Abraham here isn't just praying or pleading, he's priesting in a way. Can you see? He's taking the burden of a fallen culture and like a suffering servant going before the burden and the bar of divine justice and he's appealing to that except as we've seen, Abraham doesn't go all the way. He can't go all the way. He's looking, searching desperately for one righteous person to save their unrighteous many. He saw a way through to the heart of God but he didn't see someone who could take him there. Oh, but we can. We can. How? Oh, it's because of the greater priest, the New Testament priest, the one Abraham's priesting points us to. You say, how can I see that? Like this. Abraham prayed for the people who could have heard him, but Jesus prayed for the very ones who were killing him. Abraham stood outside the city, and he risked his life for those for whom he prayed. But Jesus Christ went into the city, and he gave his life. For those for whom he prayed. Abraham represented the people to God. Say, God, don't judge me for doing this. But Jesus says, I am representing all the wickedness of all humanity for all time. And I will take the judgment. Abraham stood as a priest for a people. And he discovered the principle that the righteousness of the one can overcome the unrighteousness of another. And Jesus fulfills the principle because he is the righteous one. Oh, see, in Jesus, we can. We can complete the movie We can finish the song. Oh, finish the work of art. He is what Abraham should have asked for. Abraham should have asked, will you save God for the sake of one righteous man? And God would have said, yes, if you have the right man. If you have the right man. And Martin Luther, great reformer, he realized this when he penned those famous words to his famous hymn. He said, did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. Were not the right man on our side. The man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. And friends, this is a picture of the gospel. That God, through the priestly pleading of the one righteous man, Jesus Christ can save the many unrighteous and yes even you that when you stand in solidarity with jesus you are saved from the justice of god's wrath do you for your many wrongdoings which now of course also means this for us who are people the christian people of god friends listen we can ask for cities as well We can pray bold prayers of great humility because there's one righteous person God will look to. And I want to tell you, when I pray for you, when I pray for marriages on the brink, when I pray for this city, I stand and I say, God, would you spare this city? Would you spare this couple? Would you spare this person? Because of the record of the one righteous, will the record of your one righteous person overcome and spare and save the unrighteousness of that city, person, couple, nation? 
Oh, we have a record to appeal to. You say, well, I, yeah, I, I, I know Jesus is my high priest. Yeah, but if, if that's the case, are you living like the high priest? He's made you to be. Are you pleading on behalf of the city that you're in? Are you standing in the gap when you see a bomb go off in the news, when you see some tragedy strike and saying, God, on the basis of your son Jesus, not on my record, not on our record, would you spare those? who don't know you. When's the last time you got down on your knees, buried your face on the carpet, shed tears of repentance and a broken heart for the people who maybe even have hurt you and harmed you like the people who hurt Abraham? Oh, you can pray great prayers of great faith, but you can also pray small. Because who heard Abraham's prayer here? In a way, only God. Only God. And yet, the prayer he prayed, passed down, communicated to us his small prayer in the secret place is still affecting us today. Yours can too. Abraham's priestly prayer in secret has changed the world. Church, ours can as well. Mosaic's prayer can change the world as well. Hope you'll say amen to that, church. Come on, let's go to him. Let's go to him now in prayer.